I, I want to take a few minutes, as I do sometimes, and just sort of get our bearings with a quick review of where we have been for the last really two to three months. Um, we are in an extended series of messages, the topic being the kingdom of God. And that is, of course, a huge topic, and it's going to take us the, probably the balance of the year almost to complete. And as we thought about what the kingdom of God is, and of course it's mentioned all over the Bible, especially in the Gospels and particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, we have defined the kingdom of God as God's rule over God's people in God's place. God's rule over God's people in God's place. And for the last uh, two months or so, we have been in Matthew 5 through 7, which is the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's usually called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, which we can think of as, as sort of like a constitution for the people of God, a constitution for, for Christ's kingdom, we see what it means to live under God's rule as God's people. So just to review a little bit, we actually started out in John chapter 3. The first thing we looked at was how to get into the kingdom of God, how to enter the kingdom of God. And, and we saw that, that, that this was not by earning our way there in any sense, but we get into the kingdom of God when we come to terms with our own sin and brokenness, when we understand that Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins, when he rose again so that we could be delivered from death and pronounced innocent in God's sight, and when we are born again to a new life by the work of the Holy Spirit. And after that, we went into the Sermon on the Mount, and we started by looking at what are usually called the Beatitudes, those places at the very beginning where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who mourn, those statements. And we found out when we looked at those things that, that the values of God's kingdom people, those who follow Jesus, are basically the total opposite in many ways of the values of the rest of the world around us, but that that's okay. It makes sense. Since we have a king, King Jesus, who won his greatest victory by dying. And as we grow in Christ, and we learn more about him, and as we come to share his heart, and we learn to live like he died, we learn to live like he died, or as Paul says in Philippians, our lives are conformed to the image of his death. As that happens, our lives become characterized by radical obedience to God in the way we conduct our lives, in ethical decisions, in our devotional life, in the way we treat others, in the way we use our material resources, and we talked about that last week. And today we're going to really kind of finish up this part of the series. We're going to come back to the Sermon on the Mount later to get some parts that we skipped. Uh, but for now, I want to kind of put a bookend on this part of the series. I'm going to call this message The Kingdom Road. The Kingdom Road. And as I read the scripture for this morning, there is a question that I want you to keep in your mind as you listen to, to Jesus speaking. Because if we can figure out the right answer to this question, then we'll have a really good idea, overview really, of what it looks like to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. And here's, here's the question that I want you to have in your mind as you hear the Scripture read this morning. It is this. Is it easy or hard to follow Jesus? Is it easy or hard to follow 
Christ? And, and you could even maybe break that up into a couple different questions. Is it easy or hard to come to Christ, to become a Christian? And then is it easy or hard to follow him, to live like a Christian? Uh, and you may already have some thoughts about what the answer to that question is, and I'm sure if I took a poll, I'd get some interesting results. We're not going to do that now. Instead, we're going to go to Jesus, and we're going to see what he has to say about the issue. So go to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to start reading in verse 13. And we're going to be skipping around a little bit. I'm starting in Matthew 7, 13, where Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Skip down to verse 21, please. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, please skip over all the way to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And when you get to chapter 11, starting in verse 25, Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. All right, now at first glance, it almost seems like those two passages say the opposite of one another, doesn't it? How could the gate be so narrow, and how could the way that leads to life be so hard, and yet then Jesus can turn around a few chapters later and say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? But this is not the only place in the Bible where you see this kind of language. You really see it a lot. There's a lot of tension like this in the book of Hebrews, for instance, where the author of Hebrews, he describes the Christian life the same way that Jesus just described it. He describes it as rest. It's rest. And yet he also says this, strive make every effort to enter that rest. Well, which is it? Is it striving or is it resting? Is it easy or is it hard? I, I think we need to, to, to find a way to think about this and to deal with this really important question. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a, of a word picture maybe that might help you understand it. Um, tomorrow afternoon, uh, Dawn and I are going to do something that we have not done in over a year and a half. We are going to get on an airplane and we are going to fly down to Tampa, Florida uh, for a few days to see Don's mom. And when we get to Greensboro Airport and we walk into the area close to where we're going to board the plane, we will need to go through security. And when we go through security, as most of you know, we are going to be coming up to a very narrow gate, right? And there are things that are not allowed to pass through that gate. For instance, if I have a firearm with me at that moment, that will not be going through the gate. It's not going to Tampa with me. If I have a large Mountain Dew, that is not going through the gate either, right? It's going to have to stay on the side of the gate. It's not getting through. 
And there are other things that we may have with us, and we will have with us, that we will be allowed to keep with us. We will still turn them over at the gate, but they will be returned to us. But in order to get past the gate, these things, which are, you know, laptops and tablets and shoes and belts and wallets and phones and and the contents of our carry-ons, these things will have to go through a kind of inspection process before we will be allowed to bring them on board the airplane. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but I want you to think of this picture when you think about entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, reminder, we do not enter the kingdom of heaven based on our own merit or our own obedience or our own religiosity or anything else that we bring to the table. We enter the kingdom of heaven only on the merit of Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and who came back to life so we could be justified, meaning declared righteous in God's sight. And yet, as we pass from death to life, Jesus says, we go through a very narrow space. Just like in that airport terminal. And there are some things that cannot go through with us. And some of these things, when we come to Christ, we actually have to say goodbye to forever. Now, what are the things that can't get through that gate? I think we get a little bit of help from Matthew chapter 11 in the verses leading up to Jesus' invitation for people to come to him. That passage we read where Jesus talked about how little children were getting the gospel message and they were understanding it, but the wise and learned, you know, the smart people, were not. And if you think about it, there's a lot of spiritual baggage that our kids don't have yet, right? Which is why it's easier for kids to come to Christ than it is for adults to come to Christ. And it's why when Jesus said, to enter the kingdom, you have to become like what? Like little children. A lot of this has to do with, with divesting ourselves of things that we have picked up along the way, things that have attached themselves to us as we have grown into adulthood. What do we have to let go of in order to become childlike and so enter God's kingdom? Well, first, we have to give up on the idea that we can run our own lives. The idea that we can run our own lives. Kids know they can't do that. But we adults tend to be under the delusion that we can pull it off, that we can make our own rules, that we can call our own shots, that we can really be our own God. Notice how, how Jesus uses the word in Matthew 7.23 when he talks to the people he doesn't know, the people he doesn't have a relationship with, the people that he says, depart from me, I never knew you. He calls them workers of lawlessness. That word means you're acting as your own God. It means you're effectively a law unto yourself. And that has a couple of different expressions. One of them is the, when you think of the word lawless, probably the most obvious thing that you think of is, is the, the, the really out there kind of godless kind of lawlessness where a person, and we all know people like this, is a person that has no intention whatsoever of ever seeking God or have anything to do with God, and he flat out declares that he doesn't need anybody else to be part of his life or to rule his life, especially not God. And so he's good to go, thank you very much, and does whatever he pleases. Now, we know people like that, and obviously an openly sinful and rebellious and unrepentant attitude is not going to fit through that gate and enter the kingdom of heaven. But the scary thing is that in these verses, Jesus actually uses this word to refer to people that claim to be following him. In fact, they've even done some pretty amazing things in his name. Some of them have prophesied, some of them have cast out demons, some of them have done miracles, 
Maybe they've been ministering very regularly in their local church for a long time. They probably have pretty good theology. They have a good reputation maybe in the body of Christ, even a leadership position of some kind. And yet Jesus says to them, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. Depart from me because you're lawless. You have no God but yourself. How could that be? Well, you see, just like it's possible to build a little empire for yourself, to build a little personal kingdom, maybe in the area of business or politics or, or your social sphere or whatever, a little, a little area that you're kind of your own little personal God and, and you build things up for yourself. It's also possible to build a personal little religious kingdom where you do all sorts of things in the name of Jesus, but it's really ultimately for your own sake. Maybe it's to make you feel good about yourself, Maybe it's to impress others. Maybe it's even to put God in a position where he will be obligated to bless you. Jesus says to these people, I never knew you. That's another kind of lawlessness. Doing Christian things in an effort to build ourselves up in the eyes of others, in an effort to serve ourselves, but never having let go of that, that self-centered need to run the show, to be our own boss, to be our own savior, really. And tragically, when we do that, we never go through the gate. That's one thing we can't take in with us. In addition to that claim to run our own lives, another thing we can not take with us and we have to leave behind when we pass through the gate, and this is another thing that kids don't have initially at least, and that's the idea that we are somehow good enough for God's kingdom. We're kind of the worthy ones. You know, we're, we're, we're unlike, we may not be perfect, but we're unlike others who aren't quite as worthy as we are. we are. We are less unrighteous than a lot of people, and so God doesn't have to work quite as hard when he saves us as when he saves somebody else. It can be hard to let go of that idea. The truth is, though, that we are all utterly broken before God, and not only can our sinful rebellion not pass through that gate, but the Bible tells us very clearly that our righteousness can't get through it either. The things we think of as our righteousness, the good things, the good part of ourselves we think about. It. Because that righteousness is not good enough. In fact, Isaiah calls it filthy rags, and, and Paul calls it dung. It's only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his merit and not our own, that we can ever pass through that gate. And so our righteousness, our righteous record, our goodness, whatever we think of that as, has to stay behind. And that can be really hard for some people to deal with. Several years ago, um, Dawn and I went down to the University of South Carolina uh, to a football game. And we weren't there predominantly to watch the football game because our son Daniel played in the marching band. So we were there pretty much to watch halftime in the pregame show to see him play. And when we got to the front gate of the stadium down in Columbia, you know, they went through our stuff as they always do at these, uh, you know, venues. And we had brought along, this was years ago, we had brought along a camcorder. And back then our phones were not quite as powerful as they are now, and so we had this camcorder with us, and they pulled it out of our, our backpack, and they said, sorry, this can't go in. Well, we had parked, as you can imagine, about half a mile away. And as we looked at the clock, we figured there were maybe about 15 minutes or so left until the pregame, which the band is a big part of and wanted to see it. So I started looking around the entrance to the stadium for a place that I could hide the camcorder, for a while and uh, couldn't find anything 
And so I grabbed the camcorder in its case and I ran a half a mile back to the parking lot where we had parked the car. I threw the camcorder into the car and then I ran a half mile back to Williams Bryce Stadium, probably the fastest mile I ever ran. And I get back there and Dawn, she's at the front of the stadium and she's holding these two little portable umbrellas we had brought. And she says, oh yeah, they say we can't take these in either. <laughs> so I looked at her and she looked at me and we both looked at the garbage can about 10 feet away. And it was really a no-brainer. It was like hasta la vista umbrella. Um, and so we got rid of them and we went into the stadium. Now, there are some things in your life that when you leave them behind at the gate, it's not all that bad. And it's not all that hard. In fact, there are some things in your life that when you leave them behind at the gate, when you come to Christ, you are thrilled to get rid of. Who does not want to leave behind feelings of paralyzing guilt? Who does not want to leave behind the shame that comes with being ridiculed? Who does not want to leave behind that lie that you've been believing that nobody will ever really love you unconditionally? But we get to leave these things behind at the gate. We joyfully toss them in the trash can as we walk through. And yet there are some other things that it's a lot harder to let go of. Some people don't have much trouble coming to terms with their own brokenness. They just can't live with the idea of not being able to run things themselves. On the other hand, some people are very willing to let Jesus lead them, but it's so hard for them to shake the idea that they are good enough or that they are righteous or that they are at least pretty good or not so bad. It's difficult. Where are you? Where are you when it comes to these attitudes and these assumptions? Are you clinging to some things that you cannot bring through that gate into the kingdom of heaven? But then there's some other stuff that we're carrying as we approach the gate. And what am I talking about here? I'm talking about things like our relationships, our possessions, our talents and abilities, our, our worldview, our intellect, our dreams for the future. We all have these things when we approach the gate, when we come to Christ. Well, are these things that we have to let go of as well? Well, the short answer is yes. But here's where it gets just a little bit more interesting. You see, just like those things that pass through the x-ray machine at the airport, and then we get them back, there are some things that we turn over to God at the gate, and then he returns them to us. But our relationship to these things is now permanently changed. Because now we have a new king, King Jesus. And he claims ownership of all of it. So, as we pass through the gate, Jesus gives us our relationships back. Our spouses, our kids, our friends. You know, if you're dating somebody, your boyfriend or girlfriend. But all these things now take a back seat to our relationship with Jesus. And in fact, now we conduct all of these relationships in the way that he has designed. He gives us our possessions back. But now we realize that, that they're not really our possessions. They're his possessions, and we are just managing them on his behalf. He gives us back our talents and our abilities and our skills and our, our career but we understand now that he gets the glory for these things and we have the joy of using them to, to spread his fame instead of our own. He gives us our intellect back 
and he still expects us to think and to study and to learn, but now we do so with what I'll call a new intellectual humility. We never again entertain the notion that we can somehow arrive at all the answers apart from the guidance of his word. And we are called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, asking him to guide our thoughts and meditating on things that are pleasing to him. He gives us our plans and dreams back, but with the understanding that he reserves the right to alter them or even to replace them at any time. Maybe he's done so with you. I know that my life right now does not look a whole lot like I thought it would look when I was nine years old or 19 years old. And Jesus then gives us back some of our wounds and our disappointments and our pain and even a few of our doubts. But we learn to carry these things not with anger or resentment or in rebellion, but with the understanding that God will use our weakness to keep us close to him and to help us communicate the love of Jesus to people who need to hear it from someone who understands where they're coming from and what they've been through. And of course, Jesus does not take away our free will, our ability to make decisions, and this leads to an ongoing, continual struggle which is why even after getting through the narrow gate, Jesus said that the, the gate is narrow, but then he goes on and says the way is hard. It seems very constricting. That word that is translated hard means constricting. It means it's a tight squeeze. I'm sure you all or most of you remember what happened in Seattle last summer when a bunch of protesters rose up and they literally took over several blocks of the city. Remember that? And they ended up calling it the CHOP Zone, the Capitol Hill Organized Protest Zone. But it had another name before that. Do you remember what it was? It was CHAZ, the, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And by calling it this, what they were saying was, in effect, that they would rule themselves. Because the word autonomous literally means self-law or self-rule. So they would not recognize any government authority. They would run things themselves. And listen, these were not all bad, horrible, depraved people with all evil intentions. They were hoping to establish a just and peaceful community there. And for the first few days, at least during the daylight hours, it went pretty well. Things looked relatively okay. You could walk right through the Chaz zone and it would be all right. But, but at night, things began to change as self-rule started to deteriorate and as armed warlords basically took over control of the streets and crime began to quickly escalate and several shootings and sexual assaults took place to the point where the mayor, who had initially been sympathetic to the whole movement, had to use violence to break up the chop zone and reestablish some sense of order in that part of Seattle. Now, when we come to Christ, we have theoretically at least given up on the idea of self-rule, right? He's going to run the show. He's our Lord. But at times, at times, and especially in certain zones, certain areas of life, the idea that we can make our own rules and our own laws, that idea starts to reassert itself. And in our hearts, what we're saying is something like this. Yes, Jesus is my king, but I still make the financial decisions. Yes, Jesus is my king, but my sex life is my business. 
Yes, Jesus is my king, but I reserve the right to withhold forgiveness from a person who hurts me too badly. Yes, Jesus is my king, but my Saturdays belong to me. Yes, Jesus is my king, but that doesn't mean that I can't listen to whatever music I want to and watch whatever TV shows I want to. Yes, Jesus is my king, but, you know, certain people in the church are just not for me. So don't expect me to associate a whole lot with them. And of course, we don't say these things audibly, right? They're, they're underneath. They're, they're just assumptions that are maybe deep down inside, and they're left over in our hearts. We've kind of unknowingly smuggled these things through the gate, as it were, and now they're coming out to reassert themselves in our lives. And before you know it, each one of us has established little chaz zones in different areas of our lives, places of self-rule, places where, where the self makes the laws, and you know what? It seems like a good idea, and it even seems to work pretty well for a while, but then in the long run, when the darkness in our hearts starts to come out, we're just going to end up making a huge mess of things. Some of you know this. You're kind of nodding right now because you've been to that place. Some of you still have to go through it. And the reason that the Christian life can seem so hard at times, the reason the road feels so narrow and so constricting and so steep, is that God never stops chipping away at those zones, those areas of life. None of us, when we first come to Jesus, none of us really knows all of what we're saying in a a way because we don't know all of the follow-up decisions that are going to be made. We don't know all of the areas that we're going to end up having to turn over. When we say Jesus is my king, we don't always know exactly what that means years from now, especially if we come to Christ when we're a kid, as many of us do. And so the Christian life for all of us really becomes a process of divesting ourselves of things that we never really gave up on even though we thought we did and giving them over to Jesus as the Holy Spirit brings them to our attention. And it's a painful process, and it never stops, because there's always another layer of the onion. There's always something. He's always chipping away at all these attitudes and wrong assumptions and destructive habits and areas of self-rule. And when, when, when God does that, it's painful. In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 15, calls it pruning Pruning, think about that. That means cutting pieces off. It's painful. But why do we prune things? Well, we do it to make them more fruitful, right? To, do them, to make them more effective, to make them more abundant. To, why do we prune our flower bushes and grapevines? You know, not just so they'll be more productive, but sometimes to make them more beautiful, more attractive, more, more pleasing to us. And that's why God prunes us. He prunes us to make us more beautiful and pleasing in His sight and to make us more useful and productive in His kingdom. The short way to say this is that He's making us more like Jesus. And that's a good thing because in the long run, even though it leads through some pain, it leads to joy. In fact, Jesus says it this way, it leads to life. Eternal life. Infinite life. Now you might be sensing a little bit of a positive spin here, like we're getting toward a transition, and that's a good thing because you've been wondering, okay, pastor, when's the easy part? We've been talking, is it easy or hard? And pretty much everything you've talked about so far indicates that it's hard. So when does the yoke get easy? When does the burden get light? Well, I want you to to try to put yourself in the sandals of the people who were listening to Jesus give that invitation in Matthew 11. 
They were people who had been taught their whole lives that the way to please God, the way to, to be good, the way to get into the kingdom, the way to get saved, was to obey the Old Testament law, and on top of that, to keep this whole list of incredibly burdensome rules that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had added to it. And so their lives were marked by continual fear, fear of judgment, continual fear of God's condemnation, and a continual frustration that they never came close to living up to that which they thought we had, they had to do. It was a horrible way to live. Talk about a burden. But the message of the gospel was not a message that said you have to do more things. The message of the gospel, and it's the same message that we have today, is that Jesus has already done all that needs to be done. He has already accomplished everything for us. He has kept the law perfectly. He has loved God with His whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He has resisted every single temptation, and He has defeated the devil on every possible playing field. The task is finished. And those who come to Jesus in faith Allowing ourselves in the process to be stripped of all of our self-righteousness and the claim to be our own God. Receive a free gift of total forgiveness and a brand new life. And the things that we do from that point forward to please God are done not to earn some sort of a wage or to build up enough merit to enter heaven. Instead, we do them as an outgrowth of this new life and out of love for Jesus as we keep finding out new ways in which he loves us. Is it hard sometimes? Is it strenuous? Is it painful? Yes. Is it burdensome? Ultimately, no. Is it worth it? We may experience hurt and shed tears along the way, but no tear is ever wasted, and there is no trouble that you can go through as a follower of Jesus that is not someday transformed into something beautiful and glorious. And the assurance of that truth brings us a joy that far outweighs the pain, which is why so often you see Christians, in fact, very often older Christians who have been following Jesus for a long time, you'll see them smiling and singing even as they go through times of, of, of horrible pain and discomfort. And it's not because the pain doesn't hurt. And it's not because they're phony people. It's just because they have a hope and a joy down deep inside of them that the cares and the heartbreaks of this world can never touch. And then, at the end of this narrow road, the way opens up. And we are ushered out of this, this narrow, constricting passageway into a wide open space of freedom and beauty and light. Easy? Hard? Yes. <laughs> but in the end, Jesus reminds us it's the road that leads to life. It leads to perfect wholeness and everlasting joy. Let's pray.